It's so easy to get into the little ruts of life, always taking the same route to work, always frequenting the same favorite restaurants. What delicious things do we miss, though, if we aren't taking the time to sneak to the back of the strip mall in suburban Atlanta and see what we find? So that some people, like normal people, would just say, oh, that's the end of the line, right? But a person like me just says, oh, I wonder what's just at the very end, and that's where it is. It's at the very back corner, and that's one of my utterly, utterly favorite places in the world. You're listening to Gravy. 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 The gravy. <laughs> Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Tina Antolini. Today, we have the story of a woman who's been documenting the evolution of a southern city through its restaurants for more than 30 years. Imagine a French restaurant critic. Who do you have in mind? It's almost impossible not to trade in beret-wearing and baguette-toting stereotypes. But pretty much guaranteed, you were not imagining this. Hip-hop to me is endlessly wonderful because it's so dynamic, it's so bouncy. I do not like chill music. Sometimes people make me mixtape and it's like this very intellectual or jazzy or whatnot. It's like, no, no, no. I like T-Pain. I'm on a boat. I like Kanye West. This is what my first real conversation with Christian Lauterbach was about. Hip-hop. We met a few years ago, while both serving on a restaurant awards committee. Here was this older woman. She's famously circumspect about her age, but joked at one point that she and Alice Waters share a birth year, which puts her at 71. She's on the shorter side, with curly silver hair, stylish Prada glasses, and a fondness for scarves, some of which she knit herself. None of this prepared me for who Christiane actually was. The hip-hop was my first clue. And for me, it's always the lure of the unusual. Like if I was a normal person, I would have stayed in Paris and married a Frenchman. And I seem to be always going completely out of my culture. It's like, oh, something weird that I haven't seen before. I must jump into it with both feet. (laughs) Same is true with (laughs) T-Pain. Yes, (laughs) T-Pain. And I do love the other two. And I just think it's so interesting. You hear it and you go, wow. Searching for that wow is what propels Christiane. This is the story of how she came to search for it in Atlanta, Georgia, and what she's provided that city in the process, in terms of its vision of itself over the past three decades. The vehicle for all that is something called Knife and Fork. It's a little eight-page newsletter, three-hole punch, that's the whole thing. I just wanted people to be able to keep it in a binder. So I know it's very old-fashioned, but every once in a while, one of my subscribers has the entire collection since 1983 <laughs> in binders. And then their wife say, you have to throw that stuff away, and then they give it back to me. <laughs> but The origins of Christiane's work as a restaurant reviewer lion habits she picked up as a child. I'm a wanderer. I I grew up in Paris, which is a very large city. And if you're a little Parisian schoolgirl, all you have is your metro ticket to just go to school. And basically, you roam constantly. And because I was not really raised in in a very nice way, I spent my lifetime simply wandering the streets, looking into the the shops, and I'm still like that. I mean, basically, I'm somebody who loves to explore and simply move through a city. How she came to explore Atlanta, Georgia, of all places, is a testament to the twists and turns of life. She left France as a young woman, 
to marry a German man. And my husband, who was a corporate lawyer, brought me to New York, where I was divinely happy. That is, until she met a certain young man who inspired her to divorce her husband. That young man went to law school at Emory University, and he convinced me that, yeah, Atlanta would be basically like New York. (laughs) The first restaurant she went to in Georgia made her realize this was not New York. I can tell you that I was taken to a place that was very famous at the time, Mahal's Boarding House. And it was a very typical boarding house, kind of a buffet. And it, I remember going out of that little house, which I would now adore. I know I would love it now. I was so shocked. I cried. I saw people putting stuff on top of stuff that, you know, we are very, we hardly eat our vegetables on the same plate as our meat. So just to see people putting cheese sauce on, uh, on macaroni, I was just like horrified, beyond the beyond. And so, Christiane decided she needed to figure out the food in this place. Luckily, Emery had given new students a sort of guidebook that included a list of restaurants. And I read that, and I meticulously I went to every one of the places that were on that, on that guidebook. <laughs> this is like the initiation guide for new students. Like, yes. you, here's where you can do your laundry, here's where you can eat. Exactly. From wandering Atlanta with that guidebook, she started reviewing restaurants with her husband. Eventually, with him and a couple of other friends, she started Knife and Fork. They wrote it together, mailed it together, but eventually one friend moved away, another died. And my husband divorced me, (laughs) so I am now Knife and Fork. (laughs) What you find in Knife and Fork over the years are the glories of Christiane's opinions, some of them wickedly sharp. Here are a few choice lines from an early review. Add Jackson Square to the long list of local restaurants that murder softshell crabs by distorting their natural sweet flavor with excess breading. This is likely to be the only place, however, where you may find a couple of hard crab legs thrown into the dish for good measure. As a texture contrast? As a biology lesson for kids? And then there are the reviews that wax lyrical with joy, like this one of a sushi place. If you can imagine a ballet in midair, consisting solely of hands and fingers performing a series of delicate yet strong movements in regular succession, you'll have some idea of how chef owner Yukio Watanabe forms sushi. Early subscribers paid $20 for a whole year and followed Christian's dining exploits religiously. But to understand what knife and fork came to mean, you have to understand a bit about what Atlanta was like during the time it got started the mid-1980s. It was remarkably different. It was tiny. I mean, I think Metro Atlanta was like half the size it is now. This is Rebecca Burns, who's now deputy editor of Atlanta Magazine. She first moved to the city in 1985. I mean, Atlanta back then was still very much a black, a black and white city, so there were some good places to get some good soul food and barbecue, and there were kind of really mediocre fake French kind of restaurants. I think there were one or two good pizza places. Around this era, Christiane started writing a column for Atlanta Magazine. She'd already been doing it for years when Rebecca started freelancing for the magazine in the mid-90s and came to its annual Christmas party. And there was this woman with this fantastic accent, and she was wearing fishnet stockings and a black mini skirt and bright red lipstick. And she's like, oh, I'm Christiane. And, and then I did the stupid thing everyone does when they meet a food person. And I'm like, oh, what's your favorite thing to eat at home? And then she just looked at me with this disgust, like, why was I asking this question? And then just said, oh, I go to bed naked and I eat yogurt. 
And my husband and I just looked at her blankly and like, oh, that's nice. And I didn't know what to say. So I just kind of wandered off. And I don't think I spoke to her for two years after that because I was so intimidated by her. The Christiane who took pleasure in shocking her work colleagues was also the one who was willing to say exactly what she thought in her reviews. Every once in a while, I will get a, a very honest thank you, but every once in a while, I will also get a death threat. <laughs> because Knife and Fork, if you have read it, know that it can be very sharply critical, and people will go absolutely nuts over their review, and will just... I did move out of, not this house, my previous house, for a short while, because I had death threat that sounded pretty credible. I did show it to, you know, let the police listen to it. So people will get incredibly furious about things. For the most part, her growing following seemed to appreciate her honesty. Whether it was taking down a restaurant's decorative bounty of blue gingham and yellow ruffles, or singing the praises of a soul food restaurant like Deacon Burton's. And then in 1996 came the Olympics a sea change moment for Atlanta. Tonight, a record 197 countries have come to Atlanta for the centennial Olympic Games. With the lead up to the Olympics, Atlanta had an enormous influx of Hispanic and Latino residents. Suddenly, because of the construction booms, Mexicans moved to Atlanta and they started little trailers where they would just feed their own people. And, you know, there's hardly anything I love better than cheap and good food. In particular, Christian noticed they were setting up shop on Buford Highway, a ribbon of concrete that spirals north of the city. Used to be just one of those pokey roads where people go to get their mufflers changed or things like that. And then suddenly there would be boop, a little Mexican restaurant, somebody just making a few tacos. And that was incredible. And my readership has absolutely been fascinated and entranced with that kind of, of scene. It wasn't just Mexicans. Atlanta tripled its foreign-born population between 1980 and 2000. The Vietnamese just opened places on Buford Highway where they had access to fairly cheap housing and where they could, you know, get around. And then the ethnic scene has just blossomed to... Uh, I would never have been able to predict what happened. Coming up, what did happen on Buford Highway, Christian Lauterbach's theory of vagabonding, and the treasures one can find in practicing it. That's ahead. And now a short word about the Southern Foodways Alliance. In keeping with SFA's beliefs about the importance of sharing stories and highlighting culinary standard bearers, each year the SFA presents a Craig Claiborne Lifetime Achievement Award. The award honors an individual whose lifetime has proved a beacon for us all. Christian Lauterbach, the subject of this podcast, was the 2010 Lifetime Achievement Honoree. Joanne Clevenger, founder of the Upper Line Restaurant in New Orleans, received the 2015 Craig Claiborne Lifetime Achievement Award. In addition to her work with Upper Line, she has also been a strong advocate for New Orleans championing its culinary renaissance after Hurricane Katrina. Her story, as well as a short film about her, is online at southernfoodways.org. Once you're online, take some time to learn about other Lifetime Achievement honorees and consider becoming a member. Members support SFA work, including this podcast. 
Hi, it's Melissa. And if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead, follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and tell them Gravy Said Hey. Ever since those early Mexican taco stands, Christian has been combing Buford Highway for restaurants. When she first began, though, it required a significant revision of her sense of how cities were ordered. Remember, she grew up in Paris. I came from a culture with a heart of the city. I mean, for the longest time, I kept saying, where is the center of the city? And Atlanta, in its nature, is an arterial city. It's like those big roads are the, what define Atlanta. And big roads like Buford Highway were increasingly this hive of immigrant activity. Soon, Knife and Fork was filled with write-ups of restaurants housed in shopping plazas and strip malls. It's like, you know, people used to make fun of strip malls. It's like, no, I like strip malls because this is where my most interesting restaurants are. And again, some people just look at me straight in the eyes and say, oh, I never go outside the perimeter. And I just want to say, you know, then you don't eat the real food. I mean, you do have to drive. Christian has rules when it comes to driving in search of restaurants. The first, never take the expressway. I'm always petrified that I'm going to end up on the expressway. If I'm on the expressway by mistake, I'm out at the next exit. This may not be efficient, but efficiency is not the point. Noticing is. Which is what gives us rule number two, embrace traffic. I have no plan to just go zoom. I'm just like, I'm not traffic sensitive. It gives me more time to actually look as opposed to being... You are one of the very few people driving in Atlanta who is actually welcoming the traffic jam. <laughs> Though that does not necessarily mean she is always patient with other drivers. I should be in the other lane. Okay, bastard, let me go. What traffic allows you to do, Christian says, is peer into shopping centers, scope out what's in them. She looks for certain clues. Just first I look at the people who are walking around. Who are those people? I mean, do they look Mexicans? Do they look Asian? (laughs) Are they? So I look at the people, I look at what they're carrying in their hands. And then I would be simply stopping at every one of those little businesses. I like to see, you know, is that that full? All the people are eating there from their own community. Christiane calls this vagabonding, turning the noun into a verb. And she does it multiple times a week in her silver Toyota Echo sedan. But now you can imagine me in my little car just going with my little head going left, right, right, left, left, right, right, left. <laughs> D- dazzled by the possibilities. <laughs> dazzled by the possibilities. That would be it. And what we find on Buford Highway is truly dazzling. One of my favorite places open just out here is a Bangladeshi meat market and cafe. And it is Divine. You feel when you're ordering chicken, you feel they literally are in the bag just like, just hacking a fried chicken. It is absolutely fantastic. It is so good and so cheap. 
Each stretch of road brings on anecdotes from Christiane about little eateries, beloved and less so. Waking to see a place that I used to be crazy about that was a place that only sold goat tacos. <laughs> they were the best goat tacos. It's a nice Vietnamese supermarket. You can buy a whole roasted suckling pig any day. They sell it by the, by the pig. <laughs> It's very nice. She makes proclamations about which immigrants have the greatest bakeries. Colombian bakeries are better than Mexican ones, Christian insists. She provides a running commentary about the changes these shopping plazas have undergone. I think that place that I came to that was a lobster pound, actually, a Chinese lobster pound, it seems to have disappeared. You travel between nations in a matter of blocks here. One minute the signs are all in Spanish, Nosotros financiamos, we finance. So everybody, everybody either is Latino or market to the Latino. The next minute, the round characters of Korean fill the signage. So starting here, this is like incredible density of Korean businesses. This here, that huge plaza, is one of the best Korean plaza. It has a super H mart. I mean, a million barbecue places. And by that we mean Korean barbecue. Christian tracks all this with the attention and vigilance of a cop, maintaining an up-to-date knowledge of the neighborhood they're policing, who the new residents are, what the old ones are up to. She drives to the back of dingy parking lots, the kinds of places that gangsters might dump a body. This is a place that I just simply happened to notice that people were going down that weirdo driveway. We go down a narrow parking lot by an overfilled dumpster and a scrappy bit of woods. From the road, all you'd see is an optical store with a sign in four languages, Korean, Chinese, Vietnamese, and English. But Christiane knows what's beneath it. So look, when I first went into that place, I could see that those people were tall, northern Chinese. They were not little Cantonese. Hey, what are you doing? The English name of the restaurant is the innocuous North China Eatery, but the contents are far more interesting than that implies. There are black and white tile floors and one wall plastered with giant laminated photos of some of the dishes on offer. When Christiane first came in here, there was no menu she could read. Well, at first I could not. There were some photographs, which is a universal language. I could see, could put my finger on this dumpling and say, just I do want that dumpling. There was no written menu and nobody spoke a lick of English when I first came here, but they were very nice to me and they let me order weird stuff. But I can How would you figure out the weird stuff if you neither of you could speak each other's languages? Well, you just, you know, you because they had photographs, it established, you know, a little, a little something. Then you also say, oh, what are they eating? You know, I'll have that. One of the things that I loved is that they served a really good breakfast with soy milk and the, and the crawlers. So that was immediately, that, that I claimed this part. <laughs> she orders us some from the shy young waiter wearing glasses. Salted soy milk. A Chinese crepe with the crawler, the crisp one. The thick crawlers are like the glazed ones you'd find in a donut shop, minus the glaze. Dipped into the savory soy milk and bitten into immediately, you get the creaminess of soy and fatty crunch of fried dough. Mm. It's simultaneously reminiscent of coffee and donuts, and utterly unlike that. Rich and savory, where the other is a sugar bomb. I adore it. Mm. 
so good. It's so delicious. <laughs> it's good, right? It's really good. It's really good. Since Christian wrote up North China Eatery, it's become a regular spot for non-Chinese Atlantans. Gentrification, she says, a bit wistfully. She scoffs at some white diners in a back corner who don't know that northern Chinese food is a wheat-based cuisine filled with noodles and dumplings, not rice. Those people are eating rice because they're not Chinese. (laughs) I'm just saying. I'm just saying. (laughs) We make numerous stops, with Christian giddily showing me Korean blood sausage and Russian butter at an international grocery store the size of a Walmart. She tries a new Cuban joint run by a couple whose small daughter scurries around the restaurant, grabbing onto her mother's leg at one point with both arms and legs like a human barnacle, giggling. We pass into a new county, Gwinnett County. This is the most recent chapter of the evolving story of Buford Highway, Christian tells me. The outer migration of the Korean community as it's grown wealthier. So we're in Duluth now? We're in Duluth. We have entered, that's the most Asian and the most well-heeled community within the greater Atlanta. And it's it's sort of like the the Asian version of white flight, you're going to the suburbs, basically? Oh, yeah. The suburbs of the suburbs? The suburbs of the suburbs. It's here that we pull into a shopping plaza housing Christian's most recent triumphant find, a little hole-in-the-wall place called Masterpiece, whose chef, Liu Ri, was a master chef in China. This is the masterpiece. Heaven fork, there it is. <laughs> there is knife and fork in the window, and it makes me so happy. Christiane sends me inside, not wanting to alert the chef to her presence. Though she's been working in Atlanta for 30 plus years, she doesn't chum around with chefs. My name is Rilu. Chinese name is Liu Ri. Chef Ri answers my questions in tentative but gracious English, wearing blue jeans and an apron. The wall is arrayed with photos of him in chef's whites, receiving all sorts of honors in China. He's been open here in Atlanta about seven months. Well, we just opened seven months. Uh, I think maybe Knife and Fork found me three months already. She's fast. Did you meet her when she was here from Knife and Fork, Christiane? Yeah, uh, before I never meet her, she sit here, eat something, I no understand who, who is her. But uh, two times, she eat one time is eight dishes. Two eight. times, and eight, you're like eight dishes. <laughs> yeah, but when last time uh, she come here, I say, oh, you write this one. She say, yes. Chef Ri follows me outside as I leave, and his face lights up when he sees Christiane. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I wanted her to know about your wonderful place, okay. how great it is. Okay. So soon I come back and eat, right? <laughs> okay, right? okay. It's a moment that brings home to me just how much Christian's poking around these restaurants can mean to their immigrant owners. Chef Ri proudly takes me over to where he's posted Christian's review on the window. This knife on the fork is very good. She gave me these stars. Three and a half stars. Yeah, you're you're basically at almost at the very top. Yeah, Yeah. very top. It's about more than just extra business from knife and fork readers, though that is certainly helpful. It's about the gesture of respect. That Christiane's glowing review of masterpiece will share the same pages with her write-ups of new white tablecloth restaurants in Atlanta. Now, maybe that wouldn't seem so surprising today, when restaurants by new immigrants are celebrated on Yelp and in glossy magazines alike. 
And of course, the internet is bursting with culinary adventurers now. But Christiane has been doing this since before pretty much anyone else. In some ways, she was the proto-blogger, the first eater on the scene, writing up her escapades in knife and fork. She catalyzed a whole stampede down Buford Highway, and is sometimes a little uneasy with the flocking of those following in her footsteps. I've mixed feelings about it, because that whole flock, flocking, that whole gregariousness associated with the scene can be detrimental to the restaurants, because they think they're so special. It's like, no, three weeks later, there'll be something else, and they will completely ignore you. <laughs> but I think that that generational shift has been incredibly meaningful. Like, people have discovered food as, a, as entertainment in a way that didn't used to be the case. After all these decades of publishing Knife and Fork, Christiane refuses to put it online. It's still a paper newsletter with its three-hole punch pages ready for the binder. No social media, either. Christiane has an iPad and an iPhone and watches Netflix, like most of us. There is more to this decision than just an aversion to technology. I'm like, you know, if I did it in a digital form, it would become a, I would become part of the conversation, and I'm like, that's not what I like to do. I'm giving you my opinion. You give me your money. That's good. <laughs> it's a good transaction as far as I'm concerned. I kept thinking about this after Christiane and I wrapped up our eating adventures with some brain tacos, about what Knife and Fork means to Atlanta now, having documented its demographic twists and turns for so many years, what it means to not have it be part of the digital conversation. And so I went to visit John Kessler. I'm John Kessler, and I am the chief dining critic and food writer at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and we are sitting here near my desk, which is completely engulfed in food products I never ask for and cookbooks that are fascinating and I'll probably never get around to reading. John's been friends with Christian for almost 18 years. He remembers a story he thinks is revealing. It's one Christian told him about a horrible woman she met at a dinner party. I mean, I love stories that start with this horrible woman at a dinner party because you're already, you visualize her, but, um, you know, came up to her and started... Um, bitching and moaning about some restaurant that Christiane liked very much. And, you know, she had issues with it. And and she said to Christiane, well, would you like to know what I thought of it? And Christiane said, no, of course not. <laughs> of course not. Not at all. This is the anecdote John thinks of when we talk about knife and fork not being online. He says Christiane doesn't want others' opinions. She's deliberately setting herself apart from the digital back and forth about Atlanta's food. She's like adding her reviews to sort of a canon. I mean, it's written, it goes into a book, and it's there. Her publication, Knife and Fork, is such an incredible, like, resource. I mean, it's the thing that, you know, eventually belongs in a library because it tells a story through the incredible variety of restaurants that she visits and the things she notices and the opinion she forms on them. I mean, she she's an explorer, and she puts down a written history of Atlanta like nobody else can. As an immigrant herself, Christiane has offered Atlantans, and all of us, her own distinct vantage on this place. And many of us need someone like Christiane to push us or entice us out of our comfort zone, our routine commutes and regular restaurants. No matter what our country of birth, we often feel cautious or a bit awkward around the new, the foreign, the unfamiliar. 
We need a Christian, blazing a path, wandering into the restaurants that make up this global Atlanta, revealing them to be friendly and full of delicious things. Christian can't imagine that she'll ever stop writing Knife and Fork, but she does have a dream for how to spend her retirement, and it is a classic Christian fantasy. A school for waiters. I just think, man, I would be good at that. It would activate some of the dominatrix maybe in me. I just would like to have the dominatrix school of waiters. And I would just show up with leather boots and a whip, and I would just whip those waiters in shape. I could retrain a waiter. I would just grab him by the ear and just make him do whatever he or she should be doing. You can learn more about Knife and Fork and find a link to a recent Bitter Southerner piece about Christiane by going to our website, that's southernfoodways.org. Music for this episode was from T-Pain, of course, Blue Dot Sessions, Michael Hurst, Diagram Collective, The Foreign Exchange, and Pottington Bear. Gravy's theme music is by Wendell Patrick. Sponsorship music is by Jazar. In just a few seconds, we'll have a taste of the next episode of Gravy, But first... We talked a bit earlier about the Lifetime Achievement Award that SFA bestows annually. We'd like to wrap up this episode by telling you about two other SFA awards and their 2015 recipients. The John Edgerton Prize recognizes individuals whose work in the American South addresses issues of race, class, gender, and social and environmental justice through the lens of food. This year, Laura Smith received the prize on behalf of the Appalachian Food Summit. The Appalachian Food Summit facilitates conversations among contemporary Appalachian farmers and producers, scholars and writers, chefs and others to explore how food traditions can become part of diversified local economies. The SFA's Ruth Vertel Keeper of the Flame Award honors an unsung hero or heroine, a food waste tradition bearer of note. In 2015, Philo Rollins Ha, a native of Middle Tennessee, was honored as the Ruth Vertel Keeper of the Flame. She worked as an airline stewardess before returning to Nashville in 1950 to host Kitchen College, the South's first televised cooking show. She was an extraordinary caterer who went on to write more than a dozen cookbooks. Ms. Ha just passed away on December 2nd, but it was our great pleasure to have honored her with a film about her life. Phyla is available to watch online at southernfoodways.org. Next up on Gravy, Writer and producer Vaughn Diaz visits Northwest Arkansas, one of the nation's hubs of poultry production. She explores the roles of Latino workers, including immigrants from her native Puerto Rico, whose own chicken industry is in decline. We hope you'll join us. (laughs) 